Coming up on episode 60 of the Upful Life podcast. It's nice to have that balance, and I think when you play in an improvisational band too, nights four and five, excuse me, nights four and five in a row are really tough. Um, Those are like, you know, the first couple nights, everybody has ideas, and it's nice. And then you have to work a little harder to make that improvisation strong on night four and night five. So there's a kind of creative reason why we like to do three or four show weeks. And then there's also that same thing we were talking about, just balance. And, you know, it's not just the home life, like wives and kids and stuff. It's nice to have a break from everybody in the road. And then, you know, the little things don't piss you off as much. And, you know, you get a couple days off from seeing everybody in the next run. You're happy to see everyone again. Whereas, you know, you go out for four weeks in a row by like week three, you're like, oh, man, you know, Stacy is such a dick. Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 60, coming at you live and direct from my mom's crib at the South Jersey Shore. Nonetheless, 60 episodes in, so grateful you are tuning in. episode 60 so stoked to be back speaking with y'all thanks for everybody who tuned in to 59 with the boys from polyrhythmics ben and jason um yeah everywhere i've been going lately been getting fantastic feedback from folks in the music communities was out at sacred rose in chicago followed that up uh in park city utah at the park city song summit and now I'm back on the East Coast, riding waves at my mom's at the South Jersey Shore. Brooklyn Comes Alive is tomorrow when I'm recording this, so by the time you hear it, it'll already happened. I want to thank everybody, like I said, who has given feedback or let me know how the podcast is landing with them. When I was in Park City, I was lucky to get a couple great pods on tape while I was there, and there was a good buzz about the Upful Life pod on the scene. And the same could be said 
for Sacred Rose, which had a bit of an ill-fated ending, but to be honest, uh, it was still a worthwhile experience. And shout out to Berg and the whole team that you know fought through tremendous adversity, lots of bad luck, bad weather, kind of a disappointing turnout. Uh, and still delivered, uh, you know, the best of their abilities given the hand they were dealt. And, uh, you know, I didn't really appreciate a lot of the shit talking I saw online and in the music circles, especially from people who didn't attend. Um, because, you know what, those situations are really difficult. And Sacred Rose staff and team was reacting on the fly all weekend long to problems, situations sound bleed deficiencies of uh, you know certain services etc which is more than you could say for most festivals as far as responding on the fly so um, i appreciated the opportunity to get out there and enjoyed myself and you know i also wanted to shout out ben anderson future guest on this podcast and founder of the park city song summit they rolled out the red carpet for all of us to come out there and enjoy ourselves and uh, i should have a feature article online on or just after when this podcast drops park city song summit will be on live for live music and upfullife.com like just about everything that I write, you can find in one or both of those places. And of course, you know, you can get all the things that I'm putting down on upfullife.com. I appreciate everybody who has rate and reviewed. As I've said time and time again, it really goes a long way with those pesky algorithms, sending us new listeners, giving us a little profile. So we appreciate everybody that's rate and reviewed the pod. Please do so if you have the time or are so inclined. Uh, such uh, important part of getting out there getting up getting out and and if you want to talk to me directly you can hit me up by the email b.gets at upfullife.com send me whatever you're thinking whatever you're feeling whatever you think i need to know you know suggestions constructive criticisms and the like Uh, i'm happy to hear it i'm grateful to hear it and i really appreciate everybody uh you know that sends a note and with that um think we'll get into episode number 60. episode 60 of the up for life podcast is honored and privileged to welcome joel cummins from umphreys mcgee now i ran into joel running around the grounds at sacred rose the festival just outside of chicago at the very end of august and joel's band umphreys mcgee played two sets the only band to play two sets kind of like the hometown heroes and we were just kind of randomly walked smack into each other on the way into the laser dome and he was like yo what's up with the podcast and i was like 
wow, kind of caught me off guard. And he was like, let's do it, man. And I was like, say the word and say when. And he did both. Hit me up and we scheduled something just a couple days later via Zoom while he was, you know, in between sound checking or something. You can kind of hear a little bit of noise in the background here and there of some kind of, you know, backline commotion, if you will. But I was grateful and, and really just thrilled to get nearly an hour with Joel while he was on tour with Umphreys. Uh, behind their new album asking for a friend and immediately I was uh, taken aback because David Frick one of my all-time music journalism heroes from Rolling Stone uh, you see him everywhere from dead shows and fish shows to jazz fest to you know like punk shows he looks like a lost member of the Ramones even today truly one of my one of my inspirations and heroes since I subscribed to Rolling Stone since I was 12 or 13, um, he did the bio and basically the feature on umfreeze.com for their new album, Asking for a Friend. So highly recommend you check that out. He sent that to me when he was like, get familiar. And I was David Frick. So Umfries has arrived. Like beyond the jam band uh, sphere, if a guy like David Frick is, you know, cranking out this beautiful piece about this band i mean say no more but uh joel said a whole lot and i was really stoked that he gave me such uh time and and energy and focus and we talked about the band we talked about keyboards and fender roads and being a keyboardist in a hard rock band because at one point in time i played keyboards from like age four or five till 22 or 23 and classical pianist played rock and funk and jam into my 20s and then I got super discouraged and stuck with the writing but I'm always hip to what keyboardists are doing and this was an opportunity to get the scoop on what you know makes Joel tick from the classical stuff to the roads to the funk to his role in Umphreys McGee and we hear about not only just the new album but their habits on the road how they route tours some interpersonal dynamics we talk a little Steely Dan it's a great chat so even though I'm not that familiar with Umphreys McGee music, you know, even I have seen them a number of times in different festivals and even in Philadelphia at the TLA the night Dimebag was murdered, but I'm not intimately familiar with the music like I am so many of the cats that are kind enough to come on this show. So I kind of took off my superfan Stan hat, put on the journalism hat, word to David Frick, and, you know, did my best to get the scoop. So, uh... I have two more things I want to add. One is I want to shout out and give thanks to some um freaks who learned me up a little bit for this opportunity, namely Ali out there in Brooklyn, my man Josh Rain Davis. I'm not even sure where he's from, somewhere on the East Coast, Virginia or something, and Johnny G and the La Special Boys. Because, And we talk a little La Special in, in the conversation with Joel, but those cats made sure I had the ammo I needed for this conversation with Joel Cummins. My first interaction with Joel takes me back over a decade um, down at the Jazz Fest in New Orleans and uh, I'd had a late night slash early morning like we always do about that time of year down there and I was uptown trying to get to the fairgrounds pre-Uber, pre-Lyft, just um, you know probably 1, 1.30 in the afternoon working on about 100 minutes sleep, maybe maybe three hours tops and trying to get my way down to the fairgrounds now 
It was hard to get a cab in those days at that time, especially uptown. Calling, oftentimes they left you hanging, trying to hail one, it was just a shot in the dark. So after about 20 minutes in the hot NOLA sun, uh, I saw this minivan cab come across a few lanes of traffic, swerve up and swoop in and scoop me up. Door, you know, sliding minivan door, swings open, you going to the fairgrounds? Yes, I am. Get in. And that voice was none other than Joel Cummins. And I was wearing a Bear Creek shirt, and Joel's band, Umphreys McGee, was on the back of my Bear Creek shirt, and it was like, what up? And I knew who he was, and uh, the rest is history. It's not like we're close buddies or anything, but I've always kind of remembered him for that. And we shoot the shit on Twitter every now and again, and when I see him, it's all love. And I gotta be honest, I'm impressed with the new Humphreys album, Asking for a Friend. It's a very mature, very evolved sound. And then I got a dose of what they're about in 2022 when they headlined the Saturday night, the Vega stage at Sacred Rose. And I didn't leave. I stayed for the whole thing and I was very entertained. So it was uh, the fumes of that gig. Uh, I kind of rode them into this conversation with Joel Cummins of Humphreys McGee. And I got to reiterate, so honored that he thought that my program was worth his time. So I hope you all enjoy this as much as I did. And uh, yeah, Joel Cummins, episode 60, the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. Uh, it's my honor and privilege today on this Friday afternoon to be welcomed uh, the great Joel Cummins of Umphreys McGee to the Up for Life podcast. Thanks for what, coming on. What is up, Begets? Good to see you, man. And thank you for taking the time to spend a little time with me and talk about Umphreys McGee. Yeah, I'm stoked, man. Uh, I just saw you last weekend at Sacred Rose. And of course, you know, everybody knows of the weather pulled the plug on that festival the last day. But you got a perfect day. You got a perfect day. Weather, the lineup was A+. Plus. And Umphreys McGee got two sets in the hometown. So uh, any reflections you want to share on uh, your experience getting back playing in Chicago, playing Sacred Rose? One thing I've really come to appreciate since the pandemic began is how many things have to go right for the band to actually end up on stage playing in front of people. So uh, to, just like you said, to have all of those elements really come together for our hometown show meant a lot. And I thought the band played, we played really relaxed and had a good vibe and it was fun up there. Um, so that having a good musical experience on top of, you know, you could feel the energy of the crowd. Um, people were so amped and um, for Saturday to go as well as it did, I mean, I was I was happy for us. I was also happy for uh, for Mike Berg and the producers of Sacred Rose because I know how hard they work to uh, to put this together. So um, it's also not often that we get to play with sort of the uh, EDM video wall elements of our production, and so to have that added in there um, for Ben Factor, our, our our lighting designer, I think was a, a really cool thing as well. I would agree, man. Uh, visually, that whole production was just massive and incredible on the eyes. And uh, from your perspective, are you able to to react to that from behind the stage? Are you able to sort of see or feel the energy from the visual aspect and then respond musically? 
it, it's really funny, man. I, you know, I saw it being used before, but I did not really have any idea what was going on with that while we were playing. Um, and part of that is also, you know, the, the lights when you're performing are usually not as much of an enhancement. You know, there are a couple looks that Ben will get and I'll be like, okay, I can see what's going on. That's cool. Um, you know, and especially the backdrop stuff, right? I can see that. But yeah, I had no idea what was happening with the video walls. So watching video afterwards, I was like, holy shit, this is fucking cool. Yeah. So, um, so that was, that was really exciting, uh, to have as well. And, you know, it's, uh, we're about, we're, we're like halfway through this run of shows in August. We have five weekends of shows in a row. And this is the first really big run with, uh, with our new album out too. So we've been, you know, working in new songs as well and got to play a couple of the new ones at the fest too, which was also really fun. I think we're all super stoked about playing the new material right now. It translates, and you can you can feel the oomph, no pun intended, in in those new joints. Let's talk about the new album a little bit, because uh, you know, I got swiftly familiar over the last few days, and uh, I know fans have been responding to it. Um, read the the bio that the great David Frick wrote for you, which is you know an honor in itself, and it talks a little bit about how this is a uh, the the album is basically a baby born of the pandemic. So I'm curious how. Uh, the pandemic and this album, uh, the writing process, the creative process and the songs. How, how does that reflect that period of time in everybody's lives? Yeah, we, we started recording with Ryan Hewitt in Nashville at Blackbird Studios in September 2019. Um, Greg Majors, who uh, went on to help us kind of engineer and, and co-produce stuff afterwards, was also in that, those sessions. Um, so the you know it, this was an album of being pragmatic because we were kind of limited with how we could get together we live all over the country and so we had to you know plan in advance these huge things and so um we one thing that we realized that i think that we can certainly take into the future is that we um because you know there were no real audiences allowed, we did two different sessions. We did one uh, in Jake's studio, Boondock in Niles, Michigan. We did one at um, basically the Backline Warehouse uh, for the guys who provide all our lighting packages and stuff in uh, outside of Chicago, and then uh, one session at Chris's uh, studio in his house in Nashville, um, and that on top of the Blackbird session. So. We had four completely different drum sounds because we had to do these in four different places. And so what we would do, you know, we'd set it up and would do webcasts, live webcasts at night. 
and put basically play a show for the fans and then do recording on all the days. So that was kind of our uh, what we realized was the format we could we could use. And then we're like, oh wow, we're doing all this and we're actually still making a little money getting together here. Uh, you know, paying for studio time. So. Um, yeah, so I think that was a very unique experience, and it really was almost three years from when we started to when the album came out. So we had more time than ever to really get detail-oriented with the arrangements of these songs and all the little elements that are happening. Jake and I were talking about this yesterday, and one thing he said that kind of stuck with me, he's like, every moment is accounted for. You know, we've really thought about... Um, where every single thing fits and how all that works. So um, I think this album, as far as song construction, you know, we, we have some proggier albums, we have some kind of heavier albums, and this one is almost like edging into the dream pop world um, where there's a lot of sort of, I mean, it's also got a little bit, it's like 10% Yacht Rock too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but it's got that kind of uh, more groovy like '70s element to it that um, you know hasn't really been a big theme on uh, our our most recent things that we put out. They've been a little more on the prog side, a little more uh, in the you know the rock and the distorted guitar side. And this one I feel like features a lot more uh, clean guitar tones too. That uh, um, you know, Jake has a, a couple solos and you know pure saturation that riff is just so nice the uh the the trade thing that we do on uh it's not it's not your fault where you know jake kind of has this beautiful pastoral tone i just love that Also, like Brian May moments in there where Brennan and Jake are doing these like three part guitar harmonies, and you're like, oh, is Freddie Mercury going to come in and sing the next verse? Um, yeah, so uh, we've been dropping singles uh, little by little since January, and you know, been working the songs in the rotation. I think we've got about nine or ten of them now, and we're, you know, we're working, practicing the final ones now to, to try to get them all in there. but. It's certainly fun to have, you know, these are songs we've never played before live, so it's 14 brand new songs to add to the live catalog, which is a really nice injection of material for us. I would notice the song craft. That was really what like hit me first, was the sort of distilled nature of the ideas. Uh, like you said, you do to a lot of prog stuff in the past, a lot of like elaborate stuff with time changes and different parts and, uh, you know, very proggy and, and jazz influence and you got to pay a lot of attention and I found myself more lost in the songs there's a there's some like alt country vibes some folk vibes like you mentioned there's there's a dream pop element and and a lot of the songs are distilled focused and shorter than a lot of people might have come to expect from the previous dozen or so th 13 albums was that a conscientious intention and and where does that dream pop 
Songcraft, alt country. Where where are you drawing that from? Either influential or in life experience? Because it's it's a very mature record. Yeah, it it definitely it definitely feels like that. I mean, you know, and to to frame it a little bit with your previous question, having all of these elements of the pandemic happening around us while we were doing that, you can hear that in a lot of the lyrical content. Um, but some of these lyrics were even written before the pandemic and, um, and they, they kind of, I don't know, there's, there's some things thematically that I think as we were picking the songs that we were going to use for this that we felt like, okay, these really fit together. So, um, you know, we were kind of known for being a stylistic, uh, stylistically disparate band who is hitting on a lot of different things here and there. And I, I think you have a little bit of that uh, going on for sure. I mean, there's a couple songs that have a, more of an electronic element, Small Strides and a Scapegoat. You know, a couple that are a little more, I, I feel like, in sort of the, the, the police Radiohead vibe with I Don't Know What I Want. Um, so there's still a lot of stylistic variety here, but there's also, there are also a lot of themes that feel like they're more related to me that really tie this group of songs together. So I, uh, I, think, that, uh, I think that that's something that we were going for. And you know, we, the, the other part of putting, we, we really like to think of this as an album and we spent a lot of time working on the sequencing and trying to get, get it right so that it felt like it would flow. Because 14 songs is a lot of songs. We actually tried to pare it down to 10 or 11, and nobody had the same favorite or least favorite songs in the band. So we were just like, okay, well, you know, let's just, uh, let's just say fuck it and give everybody everything. And, you know, um, I, I like how everything turned out. and. You know, I got to keep adding things. I think that was what was really fun for me is that, you know, I've listened to all of these songs now hundreds of times, right, um, before the album came out. And on like time 63 of listening to something, I would have an idea and write Greg and be like, hey man, I'm hearing this, let's, let's put it down. And I would be able to record something in California and send it back to him. There was one time um, when I had an idea and I was like, I want you to use, I was like, can you come up with this? It's just a two note thing. And I want you to use the synth that I'm using in this other part of the song. And so he was just able to pull those notes and actually just manually add it from, uh, from Nashville. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that ended up in small strides. So uh, there were a lot of different, a lot of different times when I got to go and, you know, also we fly into Nashville a lot when we're playing live shows and that's where Greg lives. So anytime I would fly in, I would just go over to his studio and lay stuff down, um, keyboards, vocals. Greg is a, a, a real vocal guru as, as far as being able to kind of help organize how we're going to do harmonies and songs. And so I really love what he contributed to us as far as vocal content on this too. I grew up... Um, singing in, in lots of choirs and, and uh, I was actually a vocal major for a short time at Notre Dame um, so you know like the, the harmony part is something that is really important to me and um, it's, it's just it's really helpful to have somebody there on the vocals that, uh, that can help us kind of push to the next level with that yeah it shows you can hear you know again a maturation 
in not just the songcraft, but in the vocal harmonies. And it's got to be amazing to have an asset like Greg on call that you can just <laughs> drop in on, uh, text, call, send, send a, you know, an overdub. Yeah, um, it's, am it's amazing for me. Maybe not so much for him. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it comes with the territory, but yeah. 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 <laughs> um, you, a couple of things you mentioned that I think are really, uh, you know, important to, to ask about and to note is, is as you mature as a band, um, all these years later, you know, marriage, kids, different lives, different locations. You mentioned that you're doing runs on the weekends. Now, there was a time where you just loaded up the van and you just hit the road. And now you're at a, you know, a fortunate and you've earned it to where you can call your shots and route weekend tours and still be daddy and still be husband and still be guy mowing your lawn Monday through Thursday, you know. I actually, I actually have fake grass living in uh, Santa Monica, you know, trying, trying to do my part, man. Do my part. Right on. Reduce the footprint. I respect that. Um, but yeah, just in general, um, how did you arrive at that? And, and how do you navigate that as a band? Uh, when can you make that jump? Right. Well, we, we, you know, at the most, probably 2002 or 2003, I think we played 160 shows one of those years. So we were doing five show weeks and coming home for two days. So we were even taking little breaks then for the most part. And the most we went out for, I think at a time was like four weekends in a row. We did like our first West Coast tour that we did with a, with a van and trailer, you know? Um, but it's, it's nice to have that balance and I think when you play in an improvisational band too, nights four and five, excuse me, nights four and five in a row are really tough. Um, those are like, you know, the first couple nights, everybody has ideas and it's nice. And then you have to work a little harder to make that improvisation strong on night four and night five. So there's a kind of creative reason why we like to do three or four show weeks. And then there's also that same thing we were talking about, just balance. And, you know, it's not just the home life, like wives and kids and stuff. It's nice to have a break from everybody in the road. And then, you know, the little things don't piss you off as much. And, you know, you get a couple days off from seeing everybody in the next run, you're happy to see everyone again. Whereas, you know, you go out for four weeks in a row by like week three, you're like, Oh man, you know, Stacy sure. is such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've been a band a long time in tight spaces and tight quarters and going back to college. So yeah, you've earned it. And I just think that that's, you know, something I like to spotlight, uh, the secrets to success. And I'm sure keeping yourselves fresh, keeping the interpersonal uh, communications flowing, the conflicts to a minimum, uh, making time for the other joys in your life. I know you love golf. You know, so yeah, yeah. You got to find time for that. I'm a, I'm into, you know, probably my top three uh, other athletic things: skiing, yoga, and golf. Man, those are, uh, those are what I like to do. And I'm a big baseball fan too, but I, I don't really, you know, get to play baseball right now. Okay. <laughs> um, right on. Yeah, but uh, I should mention this too, since we're, we're talking about that. I actually, uh, I wrote a book three years ago called "The Realist Guide to a Successful Music Career." Uh, my co-author Matt DeCourcy, who is uh, a, a previous author, uh, released a bunch of books, works in the music business for a bunch of years, but is really an entrepreneur and kind of jack of all trades. And so we got a bunch of other musicians involved and talked to them about their experiences. 
basically trying to help a young musician avoid the pitfalls of the music industry. It's just so hard to figure out how to be successful and also have the time and the energy for your own creativity and to continue that. Um, so, you know, we were fortunate enough to get people like Chuck Lavelle, who is the uh, keyboardist and, and musical director for the Rolling Stones. You know, he was with the Allman Brothers for years, played on a lot of Black Crows albums before they got uh, Eddie in the band, Eddie Harsh. Um, Victor Wooten, Taylor Hicks, Huey Lewis, uh, Susan Tedeschi, uh, Nikki Glaspie. A lot of, you know, people from all over the place. Pete Shapiro as well. Um, Jake, our guitarist, uh, did a chapter with me. So each chapter is about a different thing. And then the conversation uh, that we that I had with the other musicians and people in the music business appear at the end of each chapter and kind of illuminate something about whatever that chapter was about. So, you know, it's on Amazon. There are hard copies. Check it out if you're a musician, if you're, uh, you know, whether you're a hobby musician or trying to do it, like, for a career. Uh, there's lots of cool stuff in there. I love that. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to the book. And right. yeah, that, that sounds awesome. And it's it's really, you know, it says a lot about Joel, the guy that you take uh, your life experiences as a musician and and the good and the bad and and make it available to others so that they can make choices uh, or maybe not some of the same mistakes that these other musicians, in addition to yourself, have made through sharing their story. And I think it's important, you know, people get to know the musicians. That's why I do the pod. You know, we'd like to hear about the bands and the music, but also the individual. So I played piano for most of my youth into my 20s. And then I got into writing and kind of got discouraged by how great everybody else was. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask some keyboard stuff, if that's cool. Uh, yeah, um, let's do it. Uh, tell me about your passion for the Fender Rhodes, because I, I actually asked some of my Umphreys uh, freaks you know, in my, in my circle, you know, there's some stuff to ask about. And, and a couple came back from different people. And the biggest one was Fender Rhodes. Like when, when did you fall in love with it? What was maybe some of the records or the players and, and how do you find space for the roads in the Humphrey sound? Man, what a great question. And I don't think anybody's ever asked me this before. So uh, this is fun to talk about. Um, yeah, I grew up, let me just frame it a little bit. I grew up as, you know, studying uh, acoustic piano and, you know, I did classical, I did some jazz, you know, and then all the other genres kind of dabbling and stuff and obviously improvisation and songwriting, things like that. So um, I didn't really discover the Fender Rhodes uh, and like it until I want to say like I heard Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, and In a Silent Way. And I, I discovered those albums as like a sophomore in college. Um, and I finally heard the roads in a different way. I feel like before, <clears throat> I kind of heard it more growing up in the late 70s and early 80s. It was kind of this, it was a little bit cheesy. It was a little bit, you know, it, and so I didn't know the Herbie stuff yet, you know? Thank you. 
had that discovery of it as a listener then, but I didn't get to play one until later. We opened up for a band called Ray's Music Exchange from Cincinnati, Ohio. If you don't know them, I uh, highly recommend going and checking out some of their stuff. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s is when they were they were really going. They played yeah. High, High Sierra a couple times, too. Out, I saw out, them out once. In California. once. Okay, so you know. Yeah. Um, Paul Hogan was the keyboardist for them at that point, and Paul had a Fender Rhodes, and I believe he also had a JP8000, which was one of the keyboards that Aaron Magner used to kind of uh, shape the early biscuit sound, right? Um, so I heard Paul play the Fender Rhodes, and hearing it in the live setting in the kind of, you know, like fusion funk jazz sort of vibe like Ray's did, I was like, oh my God, I got to get one of these things. You know, this sounds incredible. And so I bought one in, I want to say like, right, probably like a month after we played from them or played with them in uh, summer of 99. And, uh, you know, it took me a little while to figure out what to do with it, but I figured out, I also figured out how to, you know, I had to learn how to fix broken tines and, you know, adjust yeah. pickups. It's, uh, you know, it's got these little metal, um, rods that you know are struck and they they basically ring and then there's a pickup like a guitar so it's kind of a, a unique instrument in in that setting and you know i learned that the the when they tried to when they made it they were trying to recreate the sound of a piano like well you, you didn't do very well <laughs> on that front but you know you created something new that uh that really works so um so i i got super into it then and you know, it's something that I feel like when you're in those sort of dancier vibes, um, it really works well in the two guitar format, right? Um, and it just, it sits well in the, as far as like the Humphrey sound, the mix, I think it, that's one of the reasons I, I play it more. Um, we've also been talking about, for those of, you know, you guys listening and know what the, what our stage setup looks like, I might switch where the roads and the organ are and face the roads in towards Brendan so I can uh, see him a little better when I'm playing it because I had my I asked our uh, my keyboard tech I was like listen could you do this for like five or six shows keep track of how much I play each instrument because I'm curious I've I have a seven keyboard set up right. like how it's divided out and if I have them set up the right way <laughs> you know right so um, so, the, you know, we were kind of thinking about that. But, um, man, the roads, you know, and of course, since, like, I, the, the Miles, uh, Bitches Brewing in a Silent Way, Herbie's work on that. I mean, I can put on, you know, I love looking up, like, the Herbie Funk playlist, and I'll just throw it on and listen to it for a couple hours at home. Um, that guy really pushed the roads to what it could do. You know, guys like George Duke, too, just mm -hmm. killing it. Um, trying to think who else of Jan Hammer, you know, another of my favorite Rhodes players. Um, uh, Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea. Um, Keith Jarrett had a really funny quote about the Fender Rhodes. Apparently Miles called him and asked him, said, I want you to play Fender Rhodes in my band. And Keith's like, you want, you want me to play that toy? <laughs> Call, called it a toy. Uh, I'm not surprised. He's a... Yeah. He's a quirky guy, Keith Jarrett, but also like a traditionalist to the core. His son, actually, Gabe, played in Vermont a lot when I was going to college there. I used to see Gabe play all the time, drums. 
amazing. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, Keith is uh, probably my number one favorite keyboardist. So, you know, I, wow. got to, I got to see him play live once. I mean, the Kern 1975 concert, as somebody who grew up playing piano, that is the single most impressive piece of solo improvisational piano I've ever heard, you know? That is uh, high praise. I'm going to link it in the in the, uh, in the the show as well so people can yeah. have a listen to that. Because, yeah, that, Kern- that's high praise. Kern 1975, uh, and it was, I want to say, like, late January. Um, and for those of you listening, I'm not going to tell the story, but look up the backstory of that concert because it is an insane story how that concert even happened. So, so hold on, hold on, hold yeah. on. A little more Not Fender bad. Rhodes. I want to yeah, talk more do. about Fender Rhodes. The, you know, the Rhodes to me is, it's almost my go-to instrument with Humphreys um, because I feel like it can really be, it can be a nice percussive thing that fits in with, with a groove and maybe I'll come up with something kind of repetitive. Um, it also works really well if I jump on what Ryan's playing on bass and I can kind of flesh out some chords with him like that. I love doing that with him. Um, and it's also a cool, like, um, I have a Mogerfoger delay pedal on it. And so I can set it up so it has this sort of, um, it's got this nice pitch wave going that's a little less than, um, than, a, than a half tone, uh, than a half step. So it, when, I, when I do that and set up the feedback right on it it gives it this kind of like ghostly sound and i've never really heard anyone do that before with roads so that's something i'd like to get in there to set up a little bit of like a texture template for uh for the guitarist to play over um so i think the other thing about the roads is it just feels really versatile to me too you know and you can play it with distortion i can put a ring modulator on there and it sounds great um yeah, and we go, um, Chris Mitchell takes takes it direct, um, so we go right into a DI, and I don't know, you know, I, what, what exactly he's doing. He's got a couple other things going on there, um, but he has figured out how to get my Fender Rhodes to really cut in the live mixes, and it's such a joy to listen back and be like, you know, I couldn't really, uh, couldn't really hear that as much when I was playing it, but I'm like, I can hear it now, so... Um, He's got it cutting in the Humphreys mix, and you know it's just it's a, such a cool instrument. And um, you know another guy that uh, this he was a little more of a whirly guy, but um, I'm sure there's lots of road stuff too. The way like that dude is it, for those of you who don't know who Donny Hathaway is, look up his uh, I think it's Live '72 album. Oh yeah, uh, that is like. You know, everything is everything, and the ghetto, and uh, uh, his cover of uh, James Taylor. You've got a friend. I mean, oh yeah. man, it, it's so spectacular. And that is some of my also some of my favorite keyboard playing in there. Donnie does such a great job of keeping it interesting um, while comping. He's not doing the same things, and he's a lot of this, his soloing doesn't sound like virtuosic soloing. It's more like about 
the harmony, the feel, and the uh, voicings. Yeah, so that's that's something that I definitely try to take from him as well, you know. Um, really thinking about voicing as a keyboard player. I think it's so important, especially playing with two guitar players. I have the opportunity to kind of shape the chords and the voicings when they're playing, you know, double leads or stuff like that. So that's something that, you know, I mean, that extends beyond the roads. I, I do that on, you know, the, the B3, the piano, the, uh, the, the roads, all of them. Yeah, I, I think the road, the roads is particularly special with voicings, um, just the way you you or anybody, but you you in particular, you can layer the chords in a way that's a very unique sound on the roads with the texture. Um, I wouldn't have thought of it as a versatile instrument. I'm sure Keith Jarrett didn't think versatile when he called it the toy, <laughs> but between the pedals and everything, all the advancements in the playing and sonics, it has become quite versatile. And I think you're a great example of that. And uh, you referenced a lot of the influences on the roads, um, you know, across the spectrum from the 70s up up into the current. Um, Ray's Music Exchange, great signpost too, man. I haven't heard that name in a long time. But yeah, I remember seeing them on festival lineups. And um, But with regard to influences, I hear and read, you talk a lot about classical music. And, and again, some of the fans told me to ask about, you know, your passion for Debussy. Debussy and yeah. uh, and yeah. just like uh, classical music in general. I'm a classically trained pianist. That's where I started and the first 12 years of my playing was strictly classical. Oh man, um, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. That's cool. It's kind of uh, in in the distant past, but I still have a great appreciation for a lot of it. Greek, Rachmaninoff, etc. But I want to hear about your your passion for classical, your relationship to that music and, and where does that influence you as, as an artist? So there, there are a lot of ways that I could take this for sure. Um, I grew up loving that music, but I feel like I really, I found my favorite composer with uh, Claude Debussy. And, you know, he's a, uh, uh, a French composer. Um, there's a great compilation. Um, oh, man, I want to look this up real quick just so I get it right, because I, wa I want to share this. This this is a, a double CD I got in college. I, I had with me and it was like whenever I was studying, this is what I was listening to, I feel like. I was just blasting this stuff all the time, you know, and we, we had like a huge stereo. I'm sure my my neighbors and uh, we lived in a hall called Shit Alley. I'm sure they didn't like Debussy as much as I did. <laughs> but um, Oh, Ver what is it? Werner Haas. That's what it is. W-E-R-N-E-R-H-A-A-S. And it's like the WC solo piano compilation, right? There's a lot of stuff in there. So I actually started listening to it and loving it before I really got into the in-depth playing of stuff. Um, 
And the thing that I loved about him, he got kicked out of musical conservatory because he didn't want to go by the rules of like the scales and all this. He was like, that's bullshit. I don't need that, you know? Um, and so uh, there's a lot of super interesting melodic and harmonic content where you just constantly hear things that surprise you, right? Oh, I didn't expect it to go there. And then he comes up with these, you know, amazingly arranged in intense harmonies. And, you know, he's got a, the, the um, you can hear his, his Frenchness in him, you know, I mean, it's so French. And then, you know, you can also hear some jazz in there. Sometimes he'll throw in a chord and you're like, what the fuck is that chord? That's crazy. And, um, and so, you know, I particularly, I guess, during the pandemic, I actually finally had time to work on a lot of more difficult uh, pieces that I'd wanted to do. It's just, you know, when you're out on the road playing uh, with, with Humphreys McGee, I'm working on that music, right? And that was where my heart is and where my soul is. And so when we had this little break, I'm like, well, this is my chance. You know, let's, let's do all these hard pieces that I've wanted to play. So I learned... Um, a couple things from the Image book, uh, Homage à Rameau, um, I learned Mouvement, I learned, um, what else, uh, Girl with the Flaxen Hair, oh, I should, here's a kind of fun little side note too, so uh, Mark Brownstein and Alicia Carlin started Lively um, for a lot of musicians in our scene to do uh, lessons and Stasic uh, came up with the idea despite him uh, being a dick three weeks on the road uh, came up with the idea of us doing hangs uh, with fans and so that was something we did like every couple weeks and uh, and so I got into and then you know also the live streams too we were doing private concerts I mean it was it was an amazing way to stay connected I, I was about three weeks into the pandemic of everything being canceled and I was like probably really depressed for the first time in my life and you know Mark reached out and was like we we have this idea and it took his convincing to get me to do it because I just thought like there's no way you can actually teach over zoom you know right. I'm like I need to I need to be there I need to see people's hands I need to like you know get the whole vibe and so he convinced me that we could do it and I ended up finding uh, the student um, who was uh, a 14 year old kid, uh, son of a uh, good friend of mine, and only wanted to work on classical music and had done tons of Beethoven and Mozart. And I mean, this guy is like, he's a better pianist than me, you know? Wow. And so I got to introduce him to the music of Debussy and, and all, you know, all this other stuff. And uh, he just like went nuts for it and loved it. And so that really also got to. You know, it gave me another reason to like, okay, I got to dive deeper into this music so that I can, I, I had to learn these pieces ahead of teaching them how to play them, right? Right. Yeah, so, uh, so it, that added an, a really cool, another little element to that. But um, doing the, uh, you know, the solo streams over the pandemic also gave me uh, a, a great you know, a great opportunity to play the stuff for people where I'd never really had to ch the chance to do that with Dumfries. So I feel like I got to work on my, um, you know, my technique a lot through that as well. Definitely. I love the lively thing and I've been paying attention to that and seeing a lot of artists doing that. I think that was a really productive and probably like 
just really enjoyable way to pass the time during the pandemic. All right, picking it up from where we left off, man. I I really appreciate the breakdown of the, you know, the classical influence. And can you say the composer's name again? I I, I mispronounced it. I want to make sure I got it right. I mean, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it exactly correctly either, but Claude Debussy, and it's spelled D-E-B-U-S-S-Y. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, um, highly recommend checking it out. Probably my favorite. Uh, my my favorite. Let me make sure I get this right too. Okay. So my favorite of all the solo piano Debussy stuff is the Pour le Piano Suite. And uh, it's, I can play two of the uh, three parts of it. I can play the prelude and the middle movement. Uh, the last part, I, uh, I can't quite do yet, but it is insane and awesome. So check that out. Will do, will do, definitely. Thanks for the tip. And uh, as far as the lively thing goes, um, I really think that it speaks to the community aspect of this thing of ours, whatever the scene, the jam scene, whatever. Um, a lot of different musicians, you know, coming together, led by Brownie and some others. Uh, I think Andy Gadio has a role in that too, if I'm not he mistaken. Does. He does. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, it just really uh, was beautiful to see the the connection between artist and fan, and the from something like lessons. I'm sure there was more to it than just teaching. There was connecting, people telling you about their lives, the way that your music affected them. And that had to be some real medicine during a depressing, depressing time. Oh my God, 100%. And just to, you know, I, I think we all remember those, you know, those first few months of the pandemic, we, a lot of people just felt very isolated and lonely. And so to have that avenue to reconnect and to talk to people about music, to play music with people and to, you know, as a, as a teacher to watch students really get into it and improve um it, it was it, it helped you know just kind of give that time a little more value again um so many of us were just struggling to figure out what to do at all right so um you know to have the rug pulled out from the live music scene was not something that we ever thought we would experience right. um and you know both as somebody who's a musician and as a fan we just miss those experiences so much i mean you know i there's nothing more that i love than being you know at a concert with my friends and just you know getting down to music for a few hours at a festival whatever it is and um i had you know i started having dreams that i was like going to sound check you know and i would wake up and be like oh god i'm not it's not happening yet so there's a little extra, I think, appreciation now being back on the road to like, remember there was a time when you so desperately would have given anything to just have one show and for there to be live people there and to have that symbiotic relationship that, that happens between a band and an audience where everything else just melts away. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it's all about. That's what we chase as fans, as musicians, the promoters, everybody involved in the equation is after that surrender, is after that like weightless, timeless continuum that you go into with the music and and the relationships that fans in this scene have with bands like Humphreys McGee, like the Disco Biscuits, Fish, you name it, is where, you know, the rest of life actually does pause for three or four hours. And it's just us and and to lose that 
professionally, personally, spiritually, it, it was brutal for, for all involved. So, you know, give thanks for things like Lively and for Zoom itself and all the different things that we were able to use to kind of keep connected through the music when it wasn't playing. And yeah. I, I love, uh, one of the things I love most about, about your band and music in general is metal. Right. So I before I found the Grateful Dead, I was into Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax. Yeah. You know, those yeah. are my first few cassettes. But as a keyboard player, as a kid, I really struggled to see where do I fit in here? You know, even Cinderella, who I love, but, you know, it was like a hair band. But then their keyboardist was behind the curtain. You know, <laughs> the, the closest we got was like right. Eddie Harsh on the Crows. And then you're really kind of leaving metal. So yeah. I've always as long, you know, my first Humphrey show, ironically enough and sadly enough, was at the TLA in Philly, which was on December 8th, 2004, the night that Dimebag was murdered. Oh, God. And I remember my buddy worked mm -hmm. at the venue, so I got to come backstage a bit and, and, and saw you guys receiving the news or in the aftermath of it. I remember it well. Some of y'all were playing cards. A pall was cast over the whole vibe. It should have been a really celebratory big show in Philly early in yeah, your career. Yeah, right. Um, and if I remember correctly, I think you opened with Cowboys from Hell the next night yeah. after that. And uh, that really just got me in the feels, got me in the heart, you know. Uh, so this is twofold. This is, Joel, your relationship to metal. And, and also, how do you find a, a way to work the keyboard into those palm-muted, chunky, heavy, thrashy stuff? Because, you know, you're, you're really an anomaly there. There's not a lot of cats that can find a place for a keyboard in that alchemy. Yeah, well, I, I got to be careful what I say here. They might move me off stage during metal tunes, you know. So, um, no, I, I I grew up. My first metal that I really loved was Metallica's and Justice for All. So I heard the composition in that, and I think that's what really got to me because I was like, oh, this isn't just like, you know, the, I don't know, what's a Georgia Satellites, you know, it's it like, it's 12 bar blues. No, this is like some intense stuff, right? Pretty proggy, pretty proggy. Pretty, pretty proggy, pretty proggy. And, you know, I, I, I missed the bass on that. That was a terrible yeah. way, terrible way to haze somebody. I mean, you <laughs> know, um, <laughs> Uh, make all your fans suffer with no bass. But uh, I, I thought that album really got me interested in what metal could be, you know? I was into kind of the uh, uh, the hair metal thing, Guns N' Roses. I mean, they, they, they were a little more like hard rock than hair metal. They, they were kind of straddling that line. Right. But, you know, saw them, saw Motley Crue, um, saw Def Leppard. So, you know, I, I was into the, the little poppier stuff that, that was uh, heavier as well. Um, but, you know, then 
later on, Jake and I got to be in a band called Home Free with Chris Poland, um, you know, who's Megadeth's Meg- Meg- uh, uh, lead guitarist for a lot of their really early important yeah. albums. Um, so that that was kind of a cool thing to, you know, I never thought like, oh, cool, I'll have a band with somebody that was in Megadeth, you know. Um, so, you know, that that was kind of my my intro to uh, to that scene. Um, and then the second part of your question, what does a keyboardist do for metal songs, right? <laughs> um, so I've found a few different things that work. Um, and for me, it's really about four different tones, right? It's the B3, and you got to kind of think about it like John Lord would for Deep Purple. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the big, big 151 power chords a lot and doubling stuff, you know, playing octaves. That sounds good. Um, you could do kind of a lead thing on the Moog. You can, you know, you maybe have something that's more of a bass sound on the Moog. Um, I've got a Mellotron up there now. So, like, strings and, like, weird vocal patches work for metal, you know, just as, like, something that's spooky yeah. and weird and unsettling. Um, and then the other thing I would say would be, like, distorted roads can work. Uh, with metal too. So I'm thinking about those tones a lot when we're doing things. And then also, you know, I guess I should say this too, like Wizard Burial Ground, we have this breakdown in the middle of the song. It's like this, all these huge heavy riffs and then three minutes into it, it's this piano thing that builds back up to the metal. And so I think you can do, like there is a little bit of a, like 5% connection between classical music and metal where they can coexist, right? Yeah. Yeah, there are there are some bands that embrace that even like sabotage, you know, really grandiose classical Hall of the Mountain King stuff. Yeah, it's doable. yeah, totally. And you know, even more in the hard rock area, like Muse, you know, they sure. like Matthew Bellamy's got this classical piano thing that he can work into these, you know, the power trio stuff. I love that. Um, so, you know, I think there are spots to do it. I think the the main thing that you want to avoid is having stuff that like sticks out too badly you know you want to be kind of supporting the sound and be part of that bedrock as opposed to like you know having bright sounds up there with with the guitars like let you know let the guitars be the lead on the metal for the most part right yeah (laughs) You, you find a space and it works i really took note of it the other night at sacred rose just on some of the heavier songs how you were just in there and it reminded me of my youth, how I really just struggled. There was a disconnect. I did not understand. I was a metalhead, and there was no place for me in this. And you have sort of rewired that engine in a way. And it's remarkable. Thanks, man. Well, you know, again, so going back to what I was saying before, so much of it is about those voicings. And with metal, it's keeping it simple. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and speaking on the heavy tip and uh, sort of lineage-wise, one of my favorite young bands is La Special, who I've gotten hit uh, to yeah. over the past couple of years. And you guys took them out, and they got their first Red Rocks experience, and Rory jammed with you guys. And so I'm just curious, uh, how did they get on your radar? Who who in Umphreys spotted La Special, and what are your thoughts on those guys? So uh, my thoughts on those guys, terrible <laughs> band. It wasn't me. I didn't want them to open for us. Um, 
No, but uh, Chris definitely put him on the radar for us. Uh, he was sitting in with them and was like, oh, man, they're these guys. you, you got to check them out. And so uh, I definitely listened to them for the first time because of Chris. And I think Chris probably got Vince into them as well. So Vince was all about them. He's like, man, these guys have a unique sound. They've got a really cool, like, production. And um, and so, you know, we had them out. And, you know, of course, they're they're fantastic people, too. And that that's kind of what puts it over the top for us, you know, when we're, we're trying to pick opening acts. We want somebody who gets our vibe and is also coming in and, like, you know, not right. bringing drama or weird energy. And... Um, and so I think La Special has a really cool sound, and they kind of have figured out how to mix that exactly. heaviness with a dancier vibe. Um, and uh, so it's it's cool to see. And you know, there are certainly moments where I'm like, where I'm like, oh yeah, this could be like an Umphrey's groove here for sure. But they have no doubt, you know, also created their own path and. Uh, I love to see it, and I'm just I'm so happy that uh, that Chris introduced them uh, to me, and that you know they got to play with us this year. Yeah, the influence is palpable. I mean, you can see it, and you can hear it, but at the same time, they real much like yourselves years ago. They're embracing influences and carving their own path with them instead of just parroting what they love. And I think that that's you know that's a delicate balance, but when it's done right, it's amazing. And and I think there's a lineage there. side of that coin instead of direct support you put back together the dumb tour which was you know a famed jam band co-headline with disco biscuits from years ago and you guys just took it out again what's the difference there when you when you're well, you know flip-flopping headlining and you're playing with peers as opposed to uh bringing out upstarts as direct support right right well when we have direct support usually we're still doing a two-set show and when we're co-headlining with the biscuits each band just gets one set so you really have to pack everything in and you, you there's there's no second chance there's no warm-up time you got to dive in and make it happen so i think there's a very healthy and and you know kind of friendly comp competition vibe with that as well uh, to really push each other and you know the fact that we've all been friends now for over 20 years just makes it a little more fun and uh, you know it's 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 super relaxed out there too which is nice and you know everybody's everybody's going out there trying to crush and you know back in the day we would uh, play with the biscuits and it was like yeah let's let's steal the biscuits fans I got to get a little brownie voice in here you know brownie um, you know, we would talk to him about wanting to do Humphreys shows with him, and he'd be like, Humphreys can play with the Biscuits as long as the Biscuits get two sets. <laughs> you know, that was a big deal back in the day. So, you know, the fact that, that, that 
they're okay now just uh, just doing the, the one set thing. It's really fun to be able to, uh, to do that. And obviously, so many years of holidays that we've done together, um, that event is incredibly near and dear to my heart. That's where I met my wife. Um, I'll give you one more Browning quote about that because, uh, you know, Dasha, my wife, was a, uh, a fish fan first and then definitely a biscuits fan second. She was not a fan of Humphreys. Um, she had seen us at Bonnaroo, but like, you know, she hadn't made any, she, she hadn't made any effort to come see a show or anything. And so, you know, Brownie told me, he's like, he's like, you know, Joel, all of us knew Dasha would end up with somebody, but nobody thought it would be you. You do a good mark for real. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of. Spent a lot of time around him, you know. It's uh, yeah, it's been I fun. I bet, I bet, and that's funny. <laughs> yeah, well, love that guy. Love that yeah, guy. Yeah, man. I appreciate all the time and and reflections. I'd love to, uh, you know, do this every so often with artists. So if you're feeling the vibe, I, you know, I would love to do it again down the road. We could do more ancient history. We could do more future. I always ask a last question um, related to music that's not yours. Like, what are you into? What do you listen to now? But I'm going to ask you something direct. Okay. Okay. What's your favorite Steely Dan record and why? Okay. Okay. Um, I, you know, this is probably a popular answer, but I'm going to go with Asia. I'm, I'm assuming I can't name their live album. Uh, with you can name whatever you want. But, okay. But, okay. Well, you know, the tour they did the '93 one the, with the, uh, Wayne Krantz and and Dennis Chambers. Yeah. 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 That shit is insane. So, you know, that's the one that I probably go back and listen to the most, but I love spinning the Asia vinyl. Yeah. And that one to me has the best, uh, you know, it's the most complete front to back that you're like, oh, there's no bad songs on this one. Um, and, you know, whatever they were doing back then, their vinyl sounds better than like 99% of everything else. You know, so I just love to crank that shit up. And uh, yeah, Asia's the choice. Got it. Yeah, I can't knock Asia. I love Asia. You know, I mean, it depends on the day you ask me. Some days it'll be Asia. Some days it's Royal Scam. Occasionally Katie lied, but that's the trifecta. But it's hard <laughs> to beat Asia. It's pretty much perfection from the first needle drop. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, yeah man. man. I think that being said, I think Kid Charlemagne is my favorite all around track by the Dan. So it's yeah. yeah amazing we played it a couple times and i know one time we like jammed out that last section and i just love that the after you know that that guitar solo after all of like the changes and then you're like oh you just settle in this groove and it's it's kicking
love it, man. I hope I get to see some Humphreys do Steely someday. You're on the road, so give me some of the dates in the near future. Uh, and then later this month, we'll be in Richmond, Virginia at Maymont Park. I think that's the 29th. Um, Greenfield Lake Amphitheater, Wilmington, North Carolina, the 30th. Savannah, Georgia, for the first time. We have never played there. Uh, that is on Friday, October 1st. Uh, we've had a lot of Georgia fans asking us to play there, and I've visited Savannah once, uh, so I'm super stoked to have the band there. Uh, Avondale Brewery in Birmingham, Alabama on uh, October 2nd, I think. And then Humble back in Chicago. Uh, that goes on sale, I think. It should be on sale by the time you put this out. So uh, November, cool. November 11, 12, and then New Year's in Atlanta at the Roxy, December 30, 31. So that is, uh, that's all the dates for the rest of the year, man. Nice, nice. Well, we'll put the uh, link to all things Humphreys in the show notes so people can check out the tour, the dates, and yeah, Begats, tickets can't, on sale soon. Can't wait to do this again, man. It's super fun and great questions. So yeah, man, let's do it. Much love to you, brother. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time, Joel, and safe travels. All right, brother. Take care. all right I want to say thank you and offer my gratitude to joel cummins for stopping by the up full life podcast and talking umphreys mcgee their new album asking for a friend and all that cool shit we got into and i'm really just stoked to be connected with joel to have that humorous bit of history down there in new orleans and just to have this uh communication and open rapport and like I said, I was really impressed with their performance at Sacred Rose. And yeah, thanks again, Joel. Make sure y'all check out Umphreys McGee coming to a city near you. Uh, now, like we always do about this time, the Vibe Junkie Jams. And I'm going to give you two to wrap up episode 60. Now, I figured we'd start with some Umphreys. We just talked a whole lot of Umphreys and we really talked to the new album. And the track that really resonated with me is called So Much. Has a bit of that alt-country meets R.E.M. meets dream pop. And it's only 3 minutes and 42 seconds. So it's a new arena, a new chapter for Umphreys McGee. Very mature sound. So I thought, let's play So Much from Asking for a Friend. It's the sixth track on their new album. And again, check out that David Frick piece on Humphreys.com about the new record. It's really just incredible stuff. And then we're going to wrap it up with my boys, Le Special. You heard us talk about him, me and Joel, in the conversation. You've heard Johnny G on this podcast. You've probably seen me rabble-rousing about him online in some capacity. And 
their first time playing at Red Rocks in Morrison, Colorado, was opening for Umphreys McGee earlier this summer. They just debuted the uh, multicam pro shot video from that performance on the special YouTube page. I'll drop that in the show notes. And I'm going to play the set closer from that opening slot at Red Rocks. Le Special. The song is called Tonberry, and it's from their most recent album, Ancient Homies, which just happens to be my favorite album of the year 2020. You can check that out on UpfulLife.com's favorite records of 2020. So there you have it, and that'll do it. We got Le Special. Tonberry from Red Rocks. Let's get a date on that. June 17th, 2022. And that'll do it for episode 60 of the Upful Life podcast. I want to say goodbye and job bless. And we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy.
Red Rocks, thank you all so much for lending us your ears and eyeballs and bodies and organs tonight. We are the special. It's been such an amazing experience. We want to shout out all the guys at Humphreys and their whole team and management for having us out, being so supportive and amazing. And thank all of you so much. We are the special. This is our last song. This is called Tonberry.
Because we all 